G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Life, Culture and Current Events from a Biblical Perspective, 2020 on Vision. A conversation today about criminal justice and especially approaches to youth crime. We'll be talking about the extent that jailing may be failing young Australians. You might be wondering if Christians should be interested in issues around criminal justice. Well, a less talked about fact of our Australian history is the motivation for the inclusion of a Christian chaplain on the First Fleet. He would accompany convicts and there was a view in that motivation to implementing penal reform in the new colony. So the first Christian chaplain was Richard Johnson. He was in charge of devising processes of law and order. So where are things at today in our communities? Well, our special guest today says there are significant shortfallings in criminal justice in Australia. He says it's becoming increasingly punitive and deterrent-based and has lost much of the focus on reform and restoration. We might be wondering what Christians think of the way criminal justice is implemented today. Reform and restoration, well, that has a biblical ring to it, doesn't it? But does it work? Restorative justice is a Christian way of looking at criminal justice and in particular the issue of imprisonment. Well, our special guest today will be the Reverend Dr. Gordon Priest. He's Director of Ethos, the Evangelical Alliance's Centre for Christianity and Society. He's also Chair of the Melbourne Anglican Social Responsibilities Committee. Gordon Priest is Senior Minister at Yarraville Anglican Parish in Melbourne and is an award-winning author, editor of 13 books, as well as Zadok Perspectives, Equip and the Engage Ethical Email. Gordon Priest, a special welcome back to 2020. Thanks, Neil. And uh, you're not you're not a relative of um, Richard Johnson, are you, by any chance? No, not great, I'm not. Not no. great grandfather or something. <laughs> we spell our name the same way, but no, there's no uh, there's no uh, relational connection. Uh-huh. <laughs> but <laughs> no he, bias. He is one of the heroes of faith here in Australia, though, and uh, as mm. the first chaplain, and and of course uh, the responsibility for setting up law and order for introducing. Uh, justice principles and those were around biblical foundations and so this is where we can say we certainly are a Christian nation because a lot of the things that are implemented so far as criminal justice goes go right back to that first chaplain. Absolutely Um, I I think one of the things with Richard Johnson was the well he came he came from Wilberforce's group the Clapham sect he was certainly influenced by them and they had interests in prison reform and, and later on you had Elizabeth Fry I think it was who who made a big difference in relationship to uh, reform of, of prisons and Richard Johnson um, he is a bit of an unsung hero he the the government basically wanted him to just kind of preach morality and keep the prisoners in line whereas 
he was he was more interested in grace. Um, yes, there needed to be appropriate punishment, but he wanted to preach the gospel, and so um, to some extent got in trouble over over that. Um, he also had quite good relationships with um, at least some of the Aboriginal um, population, and and had real concerns a, a, about that as well. So both both of those factors, I think. Um, are interesting, you know, for our discussion as we as we go on. A wonderful reflection on Richard Johnson, and uh, if you were contrasting him with uh, the chaplain who followed him, uh, talking about Samuel Marsden, who had mm-hmm. the reputation of being the flogging parson, yeah, and yes. uh, perhaps uh, wrongly, but but for our conversation today, there are different ways to approach criminal justice. And there was a very heavy-handedness that perhaps came in the second chaplain in Samuel Marsden. But as you say, a certain grace uh, that marked the first chaplain, Richard Johnson. And we might come yes, back to... Uh, yep. Oh, sorry, just with quickly. Um, Marsden's a hero amongst some in New Zealand because as a missionary and... Um, and he was involved, I think, in the in the treaty that um, between um, uh, in the eighteen fifties. Um, we still don't have a treaty with uh, our indigenous people in Australia, but Marsden was involved in that. Um, but in a, in the Australian context, he was he was quite different. And so it's it's it, it's interesting that the, the system in England was you had gentry, um, you know, sort of upper class clergy who were often um, involved as magistrates. I don't think it's a good mix frankly, but um, it's not a good look Christian-wise, I, it, I think. But. It might not be a good mix, but it is an historic precedent. Yeah. And yeah. for our conversation today, to know that Christians might be interested in uh, issues around criminal justice, uh, we've got that precedent very well established here in Australia, and so no doubt listeners will be interested in your thoughts today, Gordon. And, and this goes uh, not only with history and with theory, and, uh, you know, people will know you're an academic as well, but you've got some personal connections here uh, to the Russell Street bomber, uh, Craig Minogue, and uh, and some of those sorts of reflections are a part of your thoughts around criminal justice. Yes, um, well, I was I was reminded again. Just um, is, it the, is it the newsreader or the news um, that that series that's just on um, Channel Two um, ABC, mm-hmm. and we've been watching that, and it. Um, the, the last episode on uh, Sunday night was on the Russell Street bombing. That was a major part of that. And to watch that again was quite salutary. Like, it was a horrific event. It was a horrific crime. Um, but um, And it was orchestrated by a government-paid youth worker, in fact, um, who um, Craig and his brother had been both influenced by. Now, Craig was about 18 years old and semi-literate. And uh, now Craig, um, yeah, it was a horrific crime. Um, Craig admits it, and it was horrific. He wrote something for us called Inside My Skull. This is on Zadok Papers. And, um, but Craig, he did actually kill someone in prison as well who had planned to kill him. I don't excuse him, but prison is a, is a terrible and tough place. He has served his his um, full sentence um, and came up for parole after about 30 years. And then the um, Victorian government, basically in a kind of election kind of um, move, 
to show they were tough in terms of law and order, basically said he would be locked up for life and never let out again, etc., etc. And so virtually doubling his his sentence in a way that the judge um, never envisaged. So it really took things out of the, the judge's hands in that sense. So you have the court making an assessment uh, and imposing a sentence, but at the end of that sentence, uh, depending on the political climate, so you have this politicising of law and order, and uh, no doubt uh, mm-hmm. for, for some people that's going to be an important element of who gets out of jail, but, uh, but politicising law and order, that has its own consequence too. Yes, ab- absolutely, and I've, I still have a kind of article pending called, um, it's a quote from Dante, uh, Abandon hope all ye who enter here, which is actually talking about hell, but um, but in in the light of saying that the subtitle would be the um, the end of reform in Australia's criminal criminal justice system, and so I got to know uh, Craig through a great friend of mine, Kevin Maddock, who worked for uh, Prison Fellowship and then set up a uh, a Christian group for prisoners who came out. Um, from prison called Dorcas, and uh, they have church meetings, they have support groups, um, the Church of Christ in Victoria supports them, and, and uh, yes, Kevin gave um, my book on Peter Singer um, to Craig Minogue, and also Julian Knight, who was the Hoddle Street murderer, and, um, and the, the conversation with Julian Knight wasn't really, I don't think my my letters were getting through to him. But uh, with Craig, it flourished. I visited him and uh, he was quite interested in Peter Singer as, a, as an ethicist. I, and I had written a book um, on Singer, critiquing Singer largely. And I visited him and we continued to write. And Craig has been a real advocate for prisoner rights in jail, um, acknowledging you know, the, the element of justice that has to be there in any any kind of sentence. But he, for instance, has been uh, strip-searched 70 times. They have never found anything. This has been in the name of sort of, you know, drugs or etc. Et and he was... Um, so he went to court over it, and he was... It was found to be a violation of his human rights. And... Uh, but the uh, criminal justice system is apparently appealing against that. Mm-hmm. Um but so that's that's sort of one one example of um, what I think is a is a grave injustice. Frankly, yes, it was a horrific crime. But which one of us would want to be judged for our whole lives of what we did at eighteen? Um, barely an adult. No doubt, uh, listeners will be torn between the idea of being a little hard-nosed here when it comes to mm-hmm. uh, the idea of sentencing and for people who've committed horrendous crimes. And uh, we might be even divided over the idea of uh, allowing for a Christian compassion uh, if there is some evidence that that, in fact, works. Because uh, I wonder whether you've got any thoughts, Gordon, around the idea of uh, inadequate sentencing here, because uh, some people will say, well, uh, if you get a life sentence, life means life, doesn't it? And uh, and that what that might be what leads to the politicising of uh, the law and order issue here. 
Yeah. Now, in Craig's case, it wasn't a life sentence. So it, it, it was, you know, the, the problem is that, you know, a life sentence was added on um, without, without another crime. But I think in terms of, yes, yeah, so a lot of people would take an eye for an eye view. And um, I think the problem with that is that while justice needs to be done and be seen to be done and, and justice, the punishment fitting the crime is an essential element of justice and criminal justice. Uh, C.S. Lewis is very big on that and he, he wrote a critique of the humanitarian theory of, um, of punishment. And, um, but in the, in the biblical context, an eye for an eye is a limiting thing. It comes in response in um, Genesis 9 to Genesis 4, just after Cain and Abel, where violence kind of emerges in human society. And Lamech, who is one of their ancestors, he demands 70 times seven vengeance against even a young man. 70 some unlimited vengeance is what he is wanting. So an eye for an eye is a limitation. Um, and then you get, when we get to Jesus, what we get is Jesus talks about 70 times seven forgiveness in Matthew 18. Unlimited forgiveness. Now that doesn't deny a role, a role for punishment and the role of the state in Romans 13. You know, the, the state has a sword, Paul says there. So it doesn't uh, deny that, but um, certainly alongside it and um, flavouring it is is a strong element of mercy as well and um, openness to God's grace over time. So many will be divided, and especially those who may have been victims of crime themselves mm -hmm. or families yeah. or friends of victims of crime, and no doubt uh, there's going to be room for understanding the dreadful uh, circumstance of the emotional impact of that. Uh, when you're talking about it objectively and uh, when people who are making laws and uh, teaching about this, uh, a really powerful impact on Jesus' words, 70 times 7, as you say, unlimited forgiveness. Visions 2020 with Neil Johnson, a biblical perspective on life, culture and current events. Our talkback line open on 1-800-316-316 to join in our conversation today. And you might have your own thoughts on this balance or the differences between the punitive and deterrent-based ways of justice uh, or the other side of the coin, which might be around reform and restoration. Our special guest is the Reverend Dr. Gordon Priest. He's Director of Ethos, the Evangelical Alliance's Centre for Christianity and Society. We're talking criminal justice. He's been writing about criminal justice of recent times. Uh, 1-800-316-316 to join in. Uh, Gordon, if we're talking about restorative justice, uh, let's talk some context here because... Three types of justice, the idea of preemptive justice, punitive justice and restorative justice. I wonder if you've got any thoughts on those three different dimensions. Yes, well, preemptive pre acts like, um, let, let's link that with, say, deterrence. So that is a kind of justice that was around the time when White Australia was founded. So you had um, children um, being locked up. Um, for enormous sentences, you had 
people being fathers who had stolen a loaf of bread being sentenced either in some cases to death or the alternative then was transportation. They had massively overcrowded prisons and, uh, and people were stored in old ships on the Thames and, uh, and, and later um, some were sent to Georgia in the US and, and John Wesley tried to reform that. Um, by the way, when he was over there uh, unsuccessfully. But, um, and, and Australia was part of this, this process of sending um, people out and basically banished from family, um, everything that they knew to, to Australia. And so I think um, that, was, that was largely based on deterrence. It wasn't a case of the punishment fitting the crime when you had such enormous um, disproportionate punishments um, yes, punishment, um, the punishment fitting the crime is a basic, um, a, a basic tenet of justice. It is, a, it is a foundational aspect of justice, and C.S. Lewis is right about that. But it, it doesn't end there. So that the idea of uh, reform um, is based on the fact that um, over time people do change. So, so, for instance, most people or most crime is committed between the ages of about 17 or 18 and mid-20s, overwhelmingly so, and there is basically worldwide, as demonstrated, as a kind of natural kind of growing out of crime in the great majority of people. Um, as I said, none, none, none of us would want to be judged too much for things that we did um, when we were... Um, 17 or 18, like I, I lost my driver's license when I was 18. Um, it wasn't from a, a, a huge thing, but it was a, but it was a number of things, that, <laughs> that, a number of fines and, and that. Um, so I lost it for three months. Um, and you know, sort of confession time youth, here, Gordon. That's good. <laughs> yeah, you know, you know, kind of youthful, youthful yeah. um, lack of responsibility or, or risk taking, in a sense, is something that particularly young males. And when we're talking about the overwhelming nature of, of crimes committed there by young males, um, that's, that's a lot of what happens. People grow up. You know, there, there are literal biological things about this, the nature of people's brains actually being able to take into account uh, longer-term consequences. And, um, and, and, and male brains actually take longer. Young men's brains actually take longer than than uh, than young women's on on that issue. So there's there's those sorts of aspects that um, if we were able to to keep people out of jail during that period, now they 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 need to have um, education. They need to um, that they, they need to be various things in relationship to them in order to try and bring about reform. But if I can move to the, the restorative thing, because I think there's a myth that, that this is regarded as, as being soft on crime, whereas a number of people I've been listening to in the Victorian in inquiry into the criminal justice system, they are great pains to say, no, people need to face up to their crime and they need to face up to their victims. And if they, they need to see them face to face, if possible, this has to be supervised. There's a whole sort of careful science around how to do this and 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 mediated but um and it obviously needs to be voluntary particularly from both sides if it's going to work but it's designed that you see from the inside that you get a sense of what those people who have suffered in losing a loved one or whatever 
have experienced and the damage that you have actually done. And um, and so it's it's designed to really um, bring people face to face with the enormity um, of the crime that they've actually committed and, and then move on from there to enable the possibility of repentance and restoration. I'm remembering a conversation that I think was either earlier this year or late last year with some representatives from the Sycamore Tree Project. And uh, Uh for uh, listeners who are familiar with the biblical story of uh, the sycamore tree that was climbed uh, by by Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus. And, of course, uh, Zacchaeus then uh, confronted by Jesus and has lunch with Jesus and uh, understands that his taking more tax mm-hmm. than is necessary actually reveals the crime and, uh, of course, then he changes direction. So this idea of uh, grace and compassion and where Jesus might be in this, this is a, an important element for us thinking about these things as Christians, Gordon. Absolutely. Um, there's... Yeah, there is there is forgiveness. You know, I talked about seventy times seven forgiveness, but Jesus also talks about um, paying back, about reparation, yeah. and and in in scripture that's that's a large part of the nature of if you like criminal justice that someone is to pay back in uh, as far as possible. You want to say that you can't pay back when you've killed you know, for someone dying. Um, you can only only show your remorse and determination not to do something like that in the in the future but but still that can mean something to to people and we do have plenty of examples of that and where it has worked and led led to transformation but in Zacchaeus's case because given that the crime was about money he he paid it back and he, he paid it back um overwhelmingly um and uh and there's great uh, grace and and forgiveness that, that comes to him um, in that context and, and kind of reconciliation um, with, with those people who he had, who he had, uh, had violated. But there is, you know, you, you do have to, it takes time to rebuild trust in that. You can forgive someone, but it will take time to rebuild trust for someone to earn, if you like, the community's trust again or especially victims' trust um, and that's that's and that's certainly the case in say issues of abuse. Hey, only just a Thank short you. while out from news, let's squeeze in a call here. Graham McLennan, uh, who's well known to some listeners. Uh, Graham, welcome along. Yes, yes, Neil. Thank you very much. Graham, only a short time up to news. Uh, what are your thoughts for our conversation? Well, a, a couple of things. There's there are several books written uh, about uh, a guy called. Dr. Colin Browning, and he was uh, in charge of some of the convict ships coming out, and uh, in, in a sense of their spiritual uh, and medical, uh, I guess, health. And he taught them the Bible. He taught them to read first, and taught them to um, about the scriptures. And many of them became Christians, and they were definitely reformed. But in Port Arthur, there are 280 boys, and one came under conviction of sin because the Butters, the Wesleyan minister, in 1835. Uh, talked to them about the Bible and the forgiveness of sins and needing uh, repentance, and they came under conviction of sin, and over 40 boys uh, became Christians and family converted, and they used to have prayer meetings together. And so there is that aspect where we try to be harsh to try and straighten the people out, but certainly that grace of knowing God's forgiveness, and even with um, the people who are 
who were quite hard and criminals, even at part Port Arthur, were, were uh, similar things occurred to them where they came under conviction of sin, repented and led great lives afterwards and were actually uh, um, farmed out onto farms and so Graham, on. Graham, a good poison. contribution there, and I'm going to have to save yeah. uh, any response from uh, Reverend Dr Gordon Priest till after news because it's news time. Hey, Gordon, just coming back to the caller we had just before the news, Graham, uh, who was talking about early restorative justice in Australia. And uh, with some authority, given that Graham has been a receptacle for all sorts of wonderful historic content, our Christian history in Australia. But he included something very important I'll get your thoughts on. Richard Johnson and those early chaplains part of their restorative process was in teaching the Bible. I wonder if you've got any thoughts around that and uh, the fact that that may not happen to the extent as it did in the early days. Right. Um, yeah, it was, a, it was a great comment we had um, from, from Graham. And when, when we look at um, Wilberforce and the Clapham sect and the early evangelicals in the early 19th century, partly stimulated by Wesley's challenge to get rid of slavery and that, they had people like Hannah Moore. Now, Hannah Moore was founded the Sunday School Movement, and the Sunday School Movement was originally designed to basically teach people reading, but they used the Bible um, to, to as the main source for teaching uh, reading to people. So you were, you were helping people educationally, um, spiritually, in, in, in every way, um, pre- preparing them for possibly being able to get a job, educating them for, for that in that sense. So you had the whole package in the way they actually did that. And uh, and that, that particularly affected the poor who, who didn't have that kind of opportunity before. I think that when we look at Port Arthur, um, what we find there is a, a stark contrast between, say, the Christian influence, which was more restorative and more open to grace, than a utilitarian um, view. Now, utilitarianism basically was, um, that was founded at the end of the 18th century. And the idea was, they, they believed it was sort of, a, you could have scientific m- measurements of punishment and, um, and pleasure. And you would use those to try and uh, change people. And so what they, they, you would have very, very strict punishment. And that's what you had in Port Arthur in particular. And even in the chapel, they they had built it so that people stood up with it. They were confined within a little cubicle, so even kind of imprisoned within the the church, the chapel of Port Arthur, and and it was meant to just apply uh, uh, rewards and punishments um, in within that. So there was a kind of, there wasn't a sense of community and relationship, but the chaplains tried to introduce that as much as possible and the possibility of restoration and through uh, teaching, reading and the Bible um, to give people that, that second chance and were often very successful in terms of that. And wonderful to reflect on Port Arthur because so many of our listeners will have visited Port Arthur in Tasmania and uh, I'm pretty sure you're talking about the big church building that you walk into and I think it was burnt mm-hmm. down by uh, by convicts there. But as mm-hmm. you say, they were separated at the time. But just reflecting on that, the very fact that there is a large church remnant there illustrates mm. the place of the Bible in the punitive nature of what Port Arthur was, a dreadful place 
to be, but there was a church, and that the cha- and that the convicts did uh, go along to a church, and uh, so. And, of course, uh, just let me just reflect here for a moment because some people say, was Australia ever really a Christian nation? Well, there's an illustration there in itself. But over the next 120 years, almost every Australian was led to attend church and to identify as Christian and uh, grow into a very morally upright Australia. And perhaps we're losing some of that now, but certainly those Christian foundations are very powerfully there. Coming back to... uh, this restorative justice idea, uh, Gordon, uh, the Raise the Age campaign, uh, talking about young people here, uh, under 14s in particular, and especially Indigenous children, you've had some thoughts around young people and how they're affected by these criminal justice processes. Yes, look, I think um, it's it's astonishing that uh, I think in Australia we have about 600 children, I think, um, in that age group who were imprisoned in in various ways, so have various forms of youth um, detention, but also sometimes mixed in with with um, adults, and and in practice, um, and it's I think two thirds of those um, are indigenous, and uh, and they are usually for very very petty kinds of crimes, and sometimes based on mandatory sentencing. It could be you know three very petty kinds of crimes that could have been committed, you know, taking some lollies from a shop or something like that. And um, I was part of, um, we're part of the World Evangelical Alliance, and they reviewed Australia's human rights record just recently in the last year, and I was working with them on that. And one of the main things um, that Australia scored very badly for in, in a world where it's overwhelmingly 14 or more is the age um, limit below which you should not um, imprison uh, children, um, and and you know, there was we got very strong sort of reactions about Australia's record in relationship to that, and and the fact is we also have um, many many Aboriginal deaths in custody, and uh, that's been over uh, five hundred I think since the Royal Commission into that, led by a Christian judge at the time. And it's an average is about 15 per annum. I actually took a, a funeral for, um, uh, for David Gundry, who was an Aboriginal man. This is in 1989 in Sydney, in Redfern or Newtown. And he, um, he was shot um, and, and he was a, a victim of mistaken identity by, the, by a police SWAT squad. And they haven't actually changed their practices um, and it was it was pretty much sort of swept under the carpet, and I had a prison in my in my parish, um, Long Bay Jail, um, in Malabar, and they have had um, there was a David Dungay um, episode where he died in custody relatively recently, and he has been the key uh, person in relationship to a kind of Black Australian Black Lives Matter um, uh, process, so. Um, Particularly with younger children, what what tends to happen is you basically end up training them in crime. There are some um, good alternatives. So just around the corner from where I live is a place called um, Parkville um, Parkville um, well detention youth detention centre, and they used to have Parkville College there, which was led by a great educationalist, and it it did very well. But when that was um, disbanded or not um, not promoted as much. Um, afterwards, they ended up with with um, riots 
from some of the detainees there. Um, I remember my wife going in there representing Asthma Victoria and she said she just felt so sorry for them. They looked like they'd never seen the sun um, and just kind of brought out her motherly heart and compassion and very sort of pimply and and um, it's, it's not a good environment. And Parkville College, though, was... Um, did make a difference in that context. So I think that's something Im- important. Um, well, some of the other things are that, you know, homelessness, for instance, um, masses of people go from being homeless into prison and through petty crime or being caught for it. Um, when I ran a, a, a homeless ministry called Urban Seed behind Collins Street Baptist in, in Melbourne, in the early 2000s when there was massive heroin overdosing going on, particularly in the lane um, uh, just behind Collins Street Baptist. And the um, a lot of people were homeless and there was, um, there was crime in relationship to heroin, um, the explosion in heroin at the, at the, in the early 2000s. And there were... Um, a lot of people who are picked up for things like not paying um, their their fare on trams. And we would have the lawyers, um, the sort of free um, public um, lawyers, come in um, after lunch. Well, they would have lunch with us and they would talk to people about their, their situations. And that kept a lot of people out of jail. At the moment, a lot of people are going in, and a lot of young people and a lot of women in Victoria because of um, the... Uh, toughening up of bail conditions. Now, that was because of some very um, sort of famous examples where people got out and on bail and committed bad crimes. Now, they were, um, they were terrible cases, but they were very much the exception. What's happened now is um, remand, which is where people are waiting until their court case comes up. People are basically locked up and they can actually serve longer there um, with a massive backlog in Victoria and extended by because of COVID. And, um, and a lot of young people are in that situation. A lot of women, um, including victims of domestic violence, but who somehow get caught up and are, are locked up as well. And their children are in there. And it's a disaster um, for the prison system and for their rehabilitation prospects. Gordon, I wonder if you've got a thought or two here, because it seems to me as you're reflecting on those things, that media coverage of children who do commit horrendous mm-hmm. crimes, uh, that colours the treatment of all children, uh, even those ones who are guilty of committing some petty crimes. And so you've got petty criminals who are coloured with the same brush as those who are committing some horrendous crimes. That's the real challenge here, by the sound of it. Uh, absolutely. And I think... Um one one of the reasons why uh, the the attorneys general, uh, the state attorneys general, haven't really acted on this yet is well, I've heard Amanda Stoker, if um, um, the who was shadow attorney general, um, uh, in speaking in parliament, I actually asked her a question um, uh, one time, and she said she was concerned about the issue, but she said part of the reason was because of young um, people, radicalised people on the way to terrorism. Now, I, th- I think what you should do in that case is have some distinction between the more extreme cases and, and, and the other um, more petty cases, which is the overwhelming number of, of cases. Because, in fact, you know, there are people who get radicalised in prison as well. 
Um, so you can you're um, you're actually um, making for a worse problem in terms of doing that. Is there in a, Queensland? Is, is there a sense here, Gordon? Somehow, or other, you have to say we need to trust the judges and the magistrates who are making the decisions because they are well informed, rather than allow uh, this idea that uh, all young people are going to be evil if there are some who could be radicalised or some who've committed terrible crimes. Uh, somehow or other, you've got to put your trust in the way that the justice system works. Uh, otherwise, you've got this sort of trial by mob that comes uh, via media and then that affecting the political ways that people are politicising criminal justice. Is that a fair enough description of how things get out of control? Yes, I, th- I think so. And often what you find is there are, there are young people who basically have no one kind of representing them or, or there's a case of legal aid. But a lot, a lot of cases, legal aid um, reductions have meant that people meet you for only... 10, 15 minutes if you're lucky um, in terms of meet with the person who's charged just beforehand. And um, and I was in one case where I was with a, a young person and they um, there was they made a mistake. Now, um, I, I appreciated the help of this, if this legal aid person, but they actually said that the young person wasn't conforming um, in terms of taking the medication. They were meant to, they had a mental health issue. And um, the and I I put my hand up, and there's hardly anyone in the court, and the judge is a, a, a female judge, and I asked, um, excuse me, judge, but could I uh, correct something? And and I said they've been very um, conforming to their medication, and uh, this was in the New South Wales in New South Wales, and was able to correct that. And at the at the end, the judge said, I can I can see. Um, to the to the young man concerned, you know that that you have very loving, caring support, and um, and uh, they basically um, enabled um, them to be um, yeah the, have no record and not be charged, etc. And um, and they have um, absolutely remarkably um, reformed. Um, I've had the same situation with um, someone in my in my um, once in one of my churches, and I went with them. In the court case, I'd written them a reference, and at the end of the uh, judge uh, summing up, um, he he mentioned my reference, and and that person has has gone on. Um, they're a they're a mother. They had a child, and um, and and they have re- reformed remarkably well, as as well. Gordon, is there room here for honouring those prison ministries? And we often will talk about Mm -hmm. uh, prison chaplains. And, uh, you know, we've mentioned ones like Prison Fellowship or Kairos, uh, wonderful prison ministries. And in the absence of the idea that there might be mandatory Bible study and uh, reform that's coming from the government, we have to rely on uh, those prison chaplains, those pastors, prison ministries who are interacting with prisoners here for the ways that reform might happen and uh, to to uh, overcome the recidivism, the committing new crimes on uh, being let out of jail. Uh, what are your thoughts for those prison ministries? Oh, look, I think they're absolutely fundamental. And um, the, the other thing I do these days, I'm no longer in parish, but I I'm, I'm work with Catholic Social Services Victoria as a senior policy officer half-time. And um, we spoke with our chaplains recently and the stories that, that they could tell and um, of their work with with people and, uh, and, and cases where there had been real reform. And 
and uh, and also the, the need for um, making links when people come out from prison because otherwise what, what happens is a lot of people go in homeless and they come out homeless. They might have two nights in a motel that's paid for and then they've actually got to find somewhere and basically um, hardly anyone, um, you, you don't have Centrelink set up beforehand, for instance. So, so they've got no money at all. They've got to somehow work out how do they get some money to be able to get a roof over their head. So um, you, you're almost setting someone up for failure in those situations. So the links between chaplaincy within the prison and, say, um, uh, groups that work with people immediately outside prison and the systems of social welfare and other things that, that are set up before they go out um, are absolutely critical. 50% of people end up going back into prison um, largely for, for petty sorts of crimes, but um, with, that's within two years. Gordon, and that, that is just a jailing is failing. I wish we had more time to explore a whole lot of dimensions here, but let me bring you to a role uh, that church might have as you talk about uh, peer and mentor supports, mm-hmm. and it's not everybody's cup of tea, but there are going to be people listening to our conversation today part of churches and uh, churches who are thinking, how can we help uh, those who are coming out of prison in our community? What are your thoughts here for churches and uh, a response here to uh, these ways that criminal justice perhaps is failing? Well, I think I think one possibility is, is housing, but I think that that would be more likely, let's say people had a granny flat or something, that would be more likely in the context where, where someone had built a relationship through visiting someone in prison or, or um, whatever. Um, there's uh, Churches sometimes have accommodation that may be available, and I think that could be worked out in with proper support systems and accountability systems. And so I think you need both. And I think um, churches as a whole could be investing more in prison ministries, in chaplaincy, and uh, because it... it it is shown to be very effective, and so I think that's something that we need to invest in and, and look at supporting those those ministries, and like Dorcas that I mentioned, um, prison fellowship, and uh, and chaplaincy ministries. We need a range of those things, and being really yeah really welcoming to people. I've, I've you know been in congregations where there have been people who have served time, and uh, where where people have um, befriended them and uh, and tried to give them opportunities. My father. Um, in his business, he um, knew someone who was a bricklayer who taught people bricklaying skills in prisons. And he would make the link to my father, um, who is a Christian man, and, um, and his concrete products business, he would have some people just out of prison who would work for him. Well, I know listeners will be able to hear a pastoral heart uh, in all of those involvements that you've had over these past years, Gordon Priest, and uh, and people will appreciate that you've thought very deeply through these issues. And I wonder whether, uh, is there an article, is there something that we can point listeners to today? Uh, those who are interested in taking this another step deeper, uh, I'll give the website, the ethos.org.au website, but is there a particular uh, article that people could look to? Um, it it in some ways it's coming so i've got to, i've got to get something together by the 17th to um a submission to the um this criminal justice review and uh would be glad um 
to um, to be contacted about that um, at um, pro- probably best at Gordon um, at ethos dot org dot au and um, and so I could send something um, up with that and the um, the material that I sent uh, through to you Neil um, yeah that I'm happy for that to go out to other people including there's there's something from a friend of mine um, a, a, a colleague of mine. Um, there, which is a, quite a good outline about some of the issues. Um, Lindsay Wilson, who's a lawyer, a lawyer and Old Testament scholar. Okay. Well, uh, you've given your personal email there, Gordon at Ethos dot org dot au, and uh, Gordon Priest is director of Ethos, the Evangelical Alliances Centre for Christianity and Society. So you can have a direct contact if this is something that's right up your alley. You want to know some more. You want to take things a little deeper here. You want to be on the receiving end of that article when it comes out later this month. Gordon at ethos.org.au. And, of course, uh, there are many articles on the Ethos website, ethos.org.au. Also, those number of publications that... But uh, worth a mention here, uh, those publications that you're a part of, Zadok Perspectives, Equip and the Engage Ethical Email, uh, you can access those all from the Ethos website, Gordon? Uh, yes, yes, you can um, um, get most of them. Um, Zadok Perspectives is subscription-based. We just won the, won the Gutenberg Award uh, last Saturday for, um, um, yeah, best, um, well, um, yeah, a long-term contribution in in relationship to religious publishing, and uh, so um, it is a it is a, a, a great publication and deals with a lot of these kinds of issues. So um, if I can uh, get that plug in, thanks. Yeah, look, uh, a plug for it, uh, Zadok, the Gutenberg Award, and you'll be able to access. Uh, how you can link to that and subscribe to Zadok at ethos.org.au. The Reverend Dr. Gordon Priest. Gordon, thanks so much for sharing your thoughts and your heart with us today on 2020. Thanks very much, Neil. Thanks for taking time to listen to this audio on demand from Vision Christian Media. To find out more about us, go to vision.org.au. 